Welcome all to another episode of the Science and Policy Exchange podcast. We aim to bring you the latest science policy news from within Canada and the rest of the world. I'm Noah. My name is Sissy. And I'm Gloria. And we're volunteer news researchers at SBE. In this episode, we interview Paul DeFore about his recent blog piece, which revisits a 1973 report by Senator Maurice Lamatin on recommendations to improve science policy and governance in Canada. He discusses recommendations from the original report that are still of high relevance today. Paul is an adjunct professor at the Institute for Science, Society, and Policy at the University of Ottawa, the principal at PolicyWorks, and a past board member of SPE. He has over three decades of experience advising and working at the intersection of science and policy, disseminating knowledge on policy through numerous lectures, articles, and books. This interview was conducted by Sissy Suwin, a joint PhD candidate at the Max Planck Institute for Solid State Research and at the University of British Columbia. Let's hear it from Paul and Sissy. Today, we'll be talking to Paul about his recent editorial for CSPC entitled Senate Committee Releases Its Full Report on a Science Policy for Canada and Provides Recommendations for Renewed Government Organization. You can access this editorial through the link in our podcast description. One thing that Paul mentioned to me while we were setting up this interview was that the report was actually published in 1973, third in a series of four volumes published over a decade from the Special Senate Committee on a Science Policy for Canada. Paul, why don't we start off the interview by explaining what the report is, what its key findings are, and why you decided to write about this 1973 report now. Well, thanks, Sissy, for the uh, the background there. And it was a pleasure to go back to some history, which is, for me, important. You know, I did my studies in the history of science and science policy at Université de Montréal. And so I've always had a great interest in where things come from. And in this case, this was a very special commission report from a very well-respected senator who had been appointed by the prime minister at the time, Mr. Trudeau, mm-hmm. senior. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so his name was Maurice Lamontagne, and he, uh, he had a background in economics from Harvard, and he decided he was going to produce a review of where Canada could be going, should be going, might be going in terms of its science, investments, infrastructure, ecosystem, whatever you want to call it. And it was a very large-scale, massive, long-term <laughs> examination of Canada's science at the time in, in the 70s. It started actually in the late 60s, mm-hmm. and it went right through to 1977, which is the last report that he produced, Volume 4. He basically held testimony, consultations, interviews across the country with thousands of people <laughs> over that period. Uh, including, of course, going to other countries to look at how other countries strengthen and support their research systems, which, of course, included the United States, but also parts of Europe as well and the UK, because, you know, Canada was heavily influenced in its research infrastructure and support by what was going on elsewhere, particularly the UK. The US has always been there. And the French model as well. France, for, for a number of reasons, been of interest to Canada's mm-hmm. structures, right? So this report was designed to come up with recommendations on how to improve Canada's support, funding, management, governance, <laughs> policies for science in the country over the, a period of X number of years. And so he came up with a, new, a series of recommendations that looked at what do we need to do to change the way in which we view science in the country, the way we support it 
and what needs to be done to our infrastructure around these issues. So what I did for this little blog piece was to go back to some of the key recommendations in that 73 report. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I pulled out from that the recommendations that actually are still relevant today <laughs> uh, because we're still talking about them. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing about public policy is that it has a long history. Things may not be repeated, but they do rhyme at times. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's interesting to look back and learn from lessons from the past, see what can be learned from that and how can things be Develop. The other thing about this report, which was interesting to me, is that parts of it were heavily referred to and relied upon in the Naylor report in 2017 that David Naylor chaired this expert panel on Canada's fundamental discovery science. And so a lot of the recommendations that the Naylor report picked up in 2017 had their basis around some of the discussion from the Lamontagne inquiry in uh, the 70s. So it was interesting to see how things have progressed, how they've moved up, who's doing what to whom uh, in terms of public policy and support for research in the country. And I was particularly interested in, of course, what at the time La Montagne Committee was interested in doing about the National Research Council of Canada Mm -hmm. and research funding agencies. Because Mm -hmm. at the time, the NRC was everything. It was a funding agency It was a science advisory body. It was a lab organization creating labs across the country. It had an incredible um, legacy in World War II where basically Canada's contributions to the war effort around research came out of the NRC. Uh, So there was a, a huge investigation around what the NRC's ecosystem could look like in a new perspective. And La Montagne looked at the NRC. So he made these recommendations around Well, the NRC spun out. They had an associate committee for medical research during the war. And he said, what we need is a new medical research council, but separate from the NRC. Or we need a a new organization that deals with natural sciences and engineering. Because the NRC was funding, NRC was NSERC of its day. NSERC came later, right in the late 70s. And, And the social sciences and humanities had to have also its own space and it was within it was buried within the Canada Council at the time for the arts so mm-hmm. what needs to be done to strengthen that and then you know get these organizations to talk to each other right this is a refrain we're hearing about today right there's an advisory panel that was just finished its work led by Frederic Bouchard that was appointed by the minister Champagne to give advice on what should be done about the governance structures and coordination of our research councils at the moment. Because, you know, something's clearly not working. So, yeah. again, the whole you know purpose behind that historical look was to say, hey, stuff's happened before. Let's pay attention and do something with it today, like yeah. we did with the Naylor report, to try to push things forward in, the, in a good direction for Canada. I find that so interesting because as a student that's funded by NSERC and has gone through these funding application processes and have colleagues and friends that do the same thing, we all interact with these three bodies mainly. And it's not until you become a little bit more interested in science policy per se that you start to see the NRC a little bit more or as you advance up the ladder and academia that you require to interact with NRC more. And for sure, 
I see from my colleagues that there is some interaction between CIHR and NSERC, but between SHRC and the other two, maybe not so much. And they are very disjointed, but they all have very some similar commonalities and goals that as well, to give a little bit of background as well, I help organize ComSciCon CAN. This is the National Science Communications Conference in Canada. And now we're trying to apply for grant funding. And you can do that through NSERC or through SHRC. <laughs> Both would love it. And so does CIHR. And this is one of those things that is in common with all three of them, but seems so disjointed and that we have to apply to very similar processes. But they're for these individual councils and representative bodies. Um, so it becomes a little bit repetitive and maybe not as efficient as it could be. <laughs> um, but I find that so interesting. And I guess my question for you, based on this history that we've just heard, is the formation of these councils is one thing that has happened since the La Montagne report. What else is similar between the La Montagne and the Naylor report? And what is different? What has Canada done really well since the La Montagne report in terms of science and science policy? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we've understood that we need to rethink how we provide advice to government in science. It always was seen as some sort of sidebar to public policy decision making. But of course, today, thank God, we had pad science advice and health science advice, given the pandemic. Because yep. uh, if we didn't have that, and it wasn't as effective as it had been, it would have been a very different story. Not to mention, of course, the fundamental research that went into <laughs> dealing with the vaccines that we, you know, we got uh, on an incredibly fast track, which was like warp wow. speed, uh, to come back to the point about warp speed, right? Yeah. So I, I think that that was one of the issues. And, and La Montagne, his report was coming out just as, and, and he made a recommendation around it, Canada needs a ministry for science and technology, a central ministry to be able to provide guidance, provide a, a kind of a blueprint or a roadmap on where science can be going, should be going, and how different parts of the government should be investing in it, on what basis, and so on. So there was a Ministry of State for Science and Technology created in 71. And, you know, it was around for some time. Mm -hmm. And then it morphed into a Ministry of Industry and Commerce. And, you know, eventually the court of the science part of it sort of disappeared. So today we have a ministry of ICID, what's called ICID, Industry, um, Science and Economic Development. The science is sort of in the middle, right? Yeah. But in, in the 70s and 80s, uh, it was a, a real ministry, like other governments around the world had at the time, because mm -hmm. people felt it was important to pay attention to how you coordinate, manage, invest, support science. That experiment in the 70s and 80s disappeared and we briefly had a minister for science under this current Trudeau administration. But she, you know, Christy Duncan, she, she did what she could. In fact, she was the one that named this panel led by David Naylor. Mm -hmm. But her position was eliminated. And now we have a ministry and a minister who has, at last count, 36 different mandates, which yeah. is ridiculous when you think about it. We can, there's no way he can, he can actually accomplish everything he's, he was asked to do. And the provinces, all the provinces used to have a science minister or a minister responsible for science. Let me be more clear. And um, they used to meet. There was a national forum of science ministers, all the provinces and territories. That all disappeared as well. And, and in fact, today, there are no provinces, none, none, 
that has a, a minister responsible for science. By, it, by the way, that includes Quebec, because the, the minister that Monsieur Quirion reports to is not a, doesn't have science in his portfolio, which is kind of interesting to me, you know. Okay. So despite the urgency, the importance, and the criticality of how science responded to crisis, Mm -hmm. We're not doing anything about incorporating it in a very structured way, yeah. Because we know stuff's going to happen again, and okay. and so we we do need to be prepared, and we do need to have structures that are able to respond to crises using knowledge in a very effective, strategic, interdisciplinary way, and that's what you know the crisis taught us. The COVID crisis taught us that, but I worry that that lesson hasn't been learned. Yeah, it sounds a bit to me like the progression of science policy in Canada since the La Montagne report has been a little bit parabolic then. We made some changes, things were looking great, but that in the past few years, things have not been looking as great. <laughs> and we've lost a few of these crucial roles and functions in government. Is there progress that you see happening now that is doing better change for the science policy environment? And if so, what is that? Well, this current government came in with a mandate to value and respect science and scientists, right? Mr. Yeah. Trudeau, in his party platform, you know, before he was elected, made a point of saying that because, you know, we had just come out of some dark years with a previous administration who had been muzzling scientists who felt that they needed to command and control everything that their government scientists were saying. And, and it was a very dark period for the research community, particularly within the government. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Mr. Trudeau said, okay, we're going to change that, and I'm going to put some light on this stuff, and we're going to value and respect it, right? So, you know, there was, a, and therefore, I'm going to appoint a minister for science, and, you know, there were various other things that he did, but at the end of the day, in this country, there's still no roadmap for where the government is going in terms of its investments in science. Yeah. There's a lot of rhetoric around it. I was just listening to the Stephen Pakin podcast from TVO, where he has Sarah Laframboise being interviewed on the National Graduate Finance Survey that her organization produced, Yeah, which is very depressing. Yeah. When you see what's going on with investments in scholarships, fellowships, to keep our grad students and undergraduates, for that matter, in this country, let yeah. alone above the poverty line. You know, when you see that, you say to yourself, my God, what happened here? You know, we've just had an incredible effort to try to change the way in which we view talent, skills in this country, and yet we're not funding it properly. We're not supporting it properly or effectively. You know, I think that the next big thing for me is what are we going to do about supporting our next generation properly? And when I say next generation, I don't mean just Canadians, but also, of course, attracting talent where we need to attract it from, yeah. like you. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but I mean, you know, it, it, we, we rely, we are a multicultural country. We, we rely heavily on bringing in talent from wherever yeah. uh, and support it. And we have many cultures and we should be thinking about how to build on that in a much more effective way. And part of that is sending out a signal that is, we believe in this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And and the way you send out those signals is your decision makers, your leaders show leadership. And at the moment, that's been lacking. Now, the government is right now trying to rethink what to do about the granting councils. It's created this new Canada Innovation Corporation that it's trying to invest more in 
business-led mm-hmm. entrepreneurship and innovation. Mm-hmm. We'll see about that. But they've got super clusters for global research in different areas where Canada is quite strong, no question about it, and needs to be stronger. But around all of that, there's a series of very interesting little bubbles of interest, but there's nothing tying them together that would constitute a kind of a strategy or a roadmap for Canada, yeah. which includes, by the way, not just what the federal government does, okay? Mm-hmm. What is everybody else doing? Bring them in as well. Our provinces have a stake in this, territories as well. Let's have a national dialogue discussion. Naylor's report touched a bit on this. We, we need to think about this in a much more strategic pan-Canadian way uh, yeah. that can bring in all the players in a, a systematic way, you know. The reason I'm saying all this is because in 1987, in March, it was raining. I was in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And we were with the Minister of Science, with all the provinces, ministers of science, and we signed a national strategy for science technology in Canada. National. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're, that, that disappeared. We would like to promote SP's next event, Idiai in Action, Inspiring Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, or BIPOC, across the Canadian science policy landscape. It is organized in collaboration with the Canadian Commission for UNESCO, and it will take place in early October 2023 virtually. It is free and open to all. This event will discuss obstacles or challenges faced in working in science policy for the BIPOC community. We'll talk about ways in which EDI is being promoted in the field of science policy and the changes helping organizations become more inclusive. Don't forget to follow us on social media to be kept up to date on event details and registration. That's uh, that's really interesting. I so I have two questions based on everything we've just discussed. Um, I mean, my first question is: as someone who is in science and is interested in policy, there's a lot, even from our discussion in terms of history and events and how it all plays into what is happening today, that is incredibly important to know. But Is there a book that you would recommend or a source that actually goes through Canada's history of science policy? Are you working on one? You should. (laughs) No, it's a good question. I mean, my friend and I, a friend of mine who's passed away, sadly, uh, and I wrote a book called Science and Technology in Canada uh, a while ago. More recently, my other colleague at the Institute for Science, Society, and Policy at University of Ottawa, Jeff Kinder, Mm -hmm. and I have co-edited a book on the history of the Science Council of Canada which went through all of these debates when it existed from 1966 to 1992. Yeah. And we pulled together all the different streams of the history of those science policies by theme. So science education. Mm-hmm. By the way, science education in our schools <laughs> is another huge issue, but which the federal government can do nothing about because mm-hmm. it's not responsible for education, right? Yeah. So that's, that's a huge issue. You know, what are we going to do with our children being taught by our teachers, by our uh, of the school system that we have in science education. That's going to be a big issue coming down the pipeline. We looked at infrastructure, big science. Where's Canada in the big science world, right? Triumph, Snow Lab. Yeah, okay, not bad, you know, icebreakers. 
But, you know, what else are we doing around fusion? What are we going to be doing about quantum? I mean, these are non-trivial, huge infrastructure investments, right? What are we going to do about that? Anyway, yeah, so there was that. But the best book that I tell my students to read is none of those. Mm -hmm. There's a book written by a man by the name of Howard Burton, theoretical physicist, by the way. Waterloo. And it's called First Principles, The Serious Business of Doing Science in Canada. Interesting. And it's... Howard Burton was hired by Mike Lazaridis to create the Institute of Theoretical Physics at Waterloo. He was a PhD student. The book is a wonderful canvas of how you should mobilize the arguments for why why you need to invest in science across the board, why you need to have advocacy in lobby groups, Mm -hmm. why you need to understand how governments work, Mm -hmm. and why you should be able to mobilize international support for such things because it's not just what's happening at your national level that matters it's how you compare yourself of course globally you know this you see it going to germany etc right anyway that book called first principles the serious business of doing science is a wonder and it's and and he's got a lot of comedy in it so it's actually quite funny if you've never read it it's worth a read interesting i that's definitely on my to read list (laughs) And then my second question, um, based on what we discussed, yeah, as a student who's interested in science policy and has been slowly becoming more involved, you learn about these different agencies, about these histories, but also the way that they all interact together in chapters, kind of like bits by bits. Um, You get involved in one thing and then you learn about the other. And there is this disjointedness between government, nonprofits, groups, et cetera. I think there are certain initiatives, for example, CSPC, that try to bridge those and help sure. out with that. But I feel as if one of the upcoming and coming, or they're here, sort of initiatives in order to branch all of these all together are student groups. And I know you yourself have been involved in many of these. Can you speak to the student involvement in science policy that you've seen and that you see where it's going and how it's going and how important it is to maintaining our environment of science policy in Canada. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a big fan of the growth of our youth policy, science policy groups. You know, it's taken off over the last 10 years, 12 years ish. When I was growing, when I was doing my studies at uh, Concordia, Sir George Williams at the time, uh, I took a course called Science and Human Affairs. I said, wow, science impacts human affairs. I got to look into this. And I had some profs in that program. It was a liberal arts course uh, that were so, so passionate and engaging that I said, wow, this is such a cool thing. I got to, you know, I got to follow this. And that's where I got involved in science policy and history of science policy. And then I went on to do my work at Université de Montréal at an institute there that was dedicated to the subject. It doesn't exist anymore. But that said, and that got me the job at the Science Council of Canada, which, by the way, was a think tank designed to try to create advice to governments around science, science investments and industrial research and so on. So I I got excited by all that. And the schools that were actually involved in science policy at the time were starting to create new centers that looked at this stuff, right? We were heavily influenced by some interesting work that was going on in the UK, but we created our own set of institutes slowly. And then we started to graduate some students that went into government that actually knew something about science policy. 
So that's that's how this sort of trickled into the system gradually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, you know, with the use of uh, social media and, and the internet and the incredible set of uh, opportunities that now exist for students who now want to make a difference and be passionate about making a difference, mm-hmm. it has really changed the environment quite a bit. And so I'm really... If I'm very hopeful about something, <laughs> it's I'm hopeful about this next gen, la relève, as they say in French, that will pick up the challenge of making things happen through their activism, their advocacy, their commitment, and their passion. Uh, these are things that these students groups can do and will do. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see that with, of course, the SPE was a large beginning of it, but then the Toronto group uh, created something and then... You know, there was uh, the evidence for democracy stuff that came out 2012 and so on. And I, out in Vancouver, there's another group that's pushing stuff and the group at Quebec Science Advisor. So there's a lot of interesting nodes that are getting together, right? You've now created a group, right? That yeah. you're talking to each other, which is fabulous. And the youth council that Mona has created, you know, which is now going to produce its second cohort shortly will be announced. So there's been a, I think, a wellspring of interest in science policy amongst this generation. Yeah. Because you're much more engaged, attuned to what's happening around you. The environment matters. Climate change is critical. Health research has become a huge agenda issue. Mm -hmm. But also, how can we make a difference and uh, be the next ministers for science? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, you know, there were these science policy fellowships, MITAX created, there's a lot of interesting opportunities there for this field of science policy with our grad students. Mm-hmm. You know, I taught a course at University of Ottawa in that with young students, so it was a lot of fun doing that, you know. I do yeah. that. Now. And there's more people trying to do that now, and I think that's a good thing. And, and CSPC has helped motivate that, I think. Mayor Dad and, and his team have been very instrumental in promoting these youth awards, for example, and getting all these volunteers that he gets every year for the conference, which is like, wow, it's yeah. amazing. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful for the next gen mobilization, mm-hmm. advocacy that is taking place around this. And uh, eventually, you know, our public policy decision makers and our business leaders are paying attention. I mean, they are paying attention, but they need to get it a bit more. For sure. That's my that's my view. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. And now we're leading into the final question. Oh, is okay. <laughs> anything, yeah. Is there anything that I haven't asked in this interview that you would like our listeners to know? You've asked everything. <laughs> no, no, but no, I, I, look, I, I, I want to make two final points. One is, if I could, I think we need to be very attentive to when I talk about next generation to what's going on in our schools mm-hmm. and the K-12 to science teaching that's going on. Uh, we need to look more carefully at what's being taught, on what basis it's being taught, what are the curricula that are being developed to engage our very young mm-hmm. uh, students that are going to go on to something, not necessarily science, doesn't matter, yeah. but that there is a culture, a literacy that they will understand a bit more of. Yeah. Because one of the messages that came out of the COVID crisis was all these science speakers, senior people, were talking about, well, you got to understand the scientific methodology. Well, that's too late. (laughs) That was too late. You need to understand that much earlier on. And you need to have people that understand it convey it in a way 
that mm-hmm. that generation can understand it. Yeah. You know, talking about scientific methodology when you're an adult is, is, is just too late. And so for me, the science education part of our science policy will involve a pan-Canadian approach by definition because provinces take charge of that. They, they need yeah. to do that. Okay. By the way, I, I just full disclosure here, I, I'm an evaluator for the Prime Minister's Teachers Awards on science. And I have seen remarkable, remarkable teachers who survived the COVID teaching their kids about, you know, science and how they did it and how creative they are. And you yeah. say to yourself, why God, we need more of that, you know? We do. You know, <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, one thing that we talked about in science communication circles <laughs> was that what we really seemed to need to do was discuss how science wasn't just okay. You figure out whether something is fact or fiction, and that's the end of the story. That research is a very evolutionary process, and you figure out what works, and then maybe there's something that's wrong that comes up later, and then you go back to it, and then you keep working at it, and you keep working at it. But there, for sure, if you're not involved in science or in research, it's really hard to have that conception of science as something that is either right or wrong to be something that is maybe right <laughs> and could be wrong. <laughs> but, you know, science is part of culture, and and science, you know, is embedded in our culture, and you have to understand the culture. It's not just understanding what the science is. It's understanding yeah. it, on what basis it's being embedded or, or used or, or diffused or communicated or whatever. So that matters. So yeah. All of that stuff matters. It's not just the science itself. Mm-hmm. And so this interface between communicating science, understanding it, and conveying it in a persuasive way, mm-hmm. which is to come back to my earlier analogy of Mike Lazaridis and the power of ideas – you can do this. It can be done. And it can be incredibly powerful and it can make a difference for people. Not just con- you know, conveying it in any way you wish. Not just writing about it, but on podcasts and uh, you know, social media and so on. So I said two things. The first thing was the education. The second thing is, mm-hmm. where does Canada want to see itself globally? Mm-hmm. And that means, what are we going to do about projecting our image as a true knowledge player you know, globally, and where are we in addressing our international strategy for science and technology? We're not going to do it alone. We're a small player. When I put, I say small, we're medium small. You know, we are. And and so when you look around and you say to yourself, wow, you know, you've seen it in Germany and the U.S. and so on. What what can we do to improve that image, strengthen our partnerships because at the end of the day, you know, science is a, is a collaborative effort and you need to have collaborations with wherever the talent and knowledge and skills are. Mm-hmm. And that they're not all here, that's for sure. We've got 4% maybe of the world's science, maybe 2% of the world's technology, if that. So that means we have to expand our border, mm-hmm. think about this in a much more global way. And for the time being, our foreign affairs, our global affairs or organization has been asleep at the switch on this and needs to address this in partnership, of course, with the various agencies and departments and the government that pay attention to our international global efforts, right? So, Mm -hmm. and science diplomacy plays a role in that. Mm -hmm. Back to an earlier point you made, right? Diplomacy is important because science is a huge tool to break down barriers between cultures. Yeah. Of countries that don't talk to each other. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like, Like right now. So there are ways in which we can talk to each other through science and through research. Yeah. That's important. 
Well, thank you so much, Paul, for coming on the podcast and chatting with us today. Uh, it was my pleasure, and thank you for having me. And I, I wish nothing but great success to our friends and colleagues at SPE. Uh, it's a great organization. I'm slightly biased, but that's okay. <laughs> Thanks to Paul DeFore for this valuable discussion and to Sissy Suen for conducting this interview. If you are interested in reading more, you can find links to Paul's editorial for the CSPC, as well as the book mentioned, First Principles, The Crazy Business of Doing Serious Science, in the podcast description. This episode was written by Mahira Lolikar and Gloria Lau, edited by Noah Kemp, and produced by Jonathan Caballero.